Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name's John. It's great to have you here. Want to extend an especially warm welcome to you if it is your first time at New Community. I've already had a chat with a few people here who it's their first time here, in fact, first time in church. So I want to extend, yeah, really, really warm welcome to you. And uh, yeah, so good to have you here this evening. Now, it's been a bit of a mad week, hasn't it? It's been crazy. When you read the news, just some of the stuff going on. Our government is in absolute chaos. There's all sorts going off. No one seems to be happy. All sorts of dramas. You don't know who's going to be uh, in a position from one day to the next. It's all going a little bit mad. You look, you look on the TV and there's wars and rumours of wars and you, you read about stories that are actually a lot closer to home, hearing about um, teenage guys just several miles away here being stabbed and then another stabbing happened as a revenge killing and all these crazy stories there's natural disasters happening all around the world and you you hear about um, some mass shooting in America and before the kind of news is settled and dust settled on that there's another mass shooting and then it goes from the kind of depressing to the just crazy stuff I don't know if you heard the um the, the article this week about the guy in Holland who is suing the Dutch government because he wants to be 20 years younger. Have you heard about that one? True story. Go on, BBC. It's not Tony. <laughs> so this guy's in his 60s, and basically he's like, look, I don't want to be in my 60s. I don't feel like I'm in my 60s. So even though the facts say I'm in my 60s, my feelings say I'm in my 40s, and I don't like that. My birth certificate doesn't say that. And so because he's not legally allowed to change his age, he's currently suing the Dutch government. True story, go on the BBC. Yet this is the world we live in, where feelings are stronger than facts. A crazy state of play. This is our world. So what do you do when you look around the world and you see that it's falling apart? Or when you look around your life or your workplace or your neighborhood or your family and you see it's falling apart? Well, we have a tendency to do one of two different things. You either say, look, we need to just get more religious about this. We need to get stricter. We need to, to kind of try really, really hard. We need to make the rules a bit tighter, get more religious, and that will solve it. Or other people, the solution is, well, actually, we just need to be more laid back. We need to just chill out a little bit. There's that kind of rebellious spirit that says, look, we're, we're trying to kind of force people to live a certain way. There's too many restrictions, too many rules. So instead, let's just kind of loosen things up a little bit and they'll all work themselves out. Those are two of the different responses to when the world seems to be falling apart. And a similar situation was found 2,000 years ago. In the nation of Israel, governments and leaders and nations at war and, and things kicking off, things going wrong, morals collapsing, families breaking down. And so people had that same decision that we have today. Are we going to turn to religion or are we going to turn to rebellion? And a group of people, a religious group of leaders called the Pharisees said, we have the solution, we're going to turn to religion. And so these guys, the Pharisees, Pharisees literally meaning set apart the kind of the holy huddle as it were. These guys say, look, we're going to devote our lives to living the perfect life for God. So they spent all their lives, you know, studying and reading the, the books of the Old Testament and just saying, okay, what would God want us to do and how do we live for him? And they were hardcore religious people. And the reason why the Pharisees are so interesting for us to study today is that these were the guys who spent all their time studying about who God is. Yet when God came to earth as a man in Jesus, 
Not only did these experts not recognize him, but they had him killed. So how could people who are so certain that they're right get it so wrong? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you've seen um, a celebrity or a leader or maybe a church pastor who you follow on Instagram and like the little one minute snippets like so good, double tap like, you know, if you see that leader who you're like so good, I, I look up to them, they're my inspiration. And then all of a sudden a, a new story breaks and you find out that they've fallen morally. Maybe they've had an affair or stolen money or they've, they said God's called them to, to have a private jet or just something crazy like that. And you're like, how has this happened? And you just think, what is going on? Yet the truth is, it can happen to all of us. It can happen to all of us. You can be so convinced that you're right and yet be horribly wrong. And if that scares you a little bit tonight, then you're in a really healthy place. Because it's really important that we have a sober look at these things. And that's why I think the Pharisees are so good for us to look at tonight. Because it's pretty uncomfortable. Because if they can screw it up, so can we. And so let's not make the same mistakes they did and learn from their lives. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 7. This is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And there's four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all telling the story of Jesus. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and tonight we're in chapter 7, and we're starting in verse 1. The words will be up on the screen. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They hadn't done the ceremonial washing. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But instead, eat with defiled hands. And he, Jesus, said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So that's obviously pretty damning for the Pharisees. If, if you read through the Gospels, I did this a while back. I was doing a lot of driving. I decided to listen to the audio Bible, listen through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you know what? The number one thing that stood out to me was Jesus goes to town on the Pharisees. Like he is regularly rebuking them and calling them out. If you're new to church tonight, you might be thinking, well, Jesus, you know, religious people, you know, leaders, Jesus would probably, you know, criticize all the, you know, the addicts and the prostitutes and the really terrible people. Yeah, in fact, he hung out with all of them. And it was the people who thought they were good that he had his strongest comments for. He calls them stuff like hypocrites and frauds and snakes. He's not, a, he's not ashamed or embarrassed of confrontation. He goes in on the Pharisees. And I think it's important for us to, again, look at how on earth did this happen? Because a lot of the Pharisees started with good intentions. These weren't just some kind of power-hungry individuals that schemed together one day. How can we get all the power? In fact, many of them really, really did want to honor God. In fact, so much so, much so that during the Maccabean War, some of the Pharisees were martyred for their faith. They said, if you stop us from obeying God, then we would rather die. So these guys started well and ended really badly. And so let's look at why. 
The reason why the Pharisees ended so badly is because they looked to religion as their saviour. They looked to religion as their saviour. Now, religion says that rules save. Rules save you. So the Pharisees, what they did is they said, okay, we've got all the, the writings here of the commandments of God, like the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments is uh, you should honour the Sabbath uh, and have a, a day of rest. And clearly, that isn't working. People aren't doing it. So what are we going to do? We're going to make extra rules to make sure that people obey the core essential rules. So they'd say things like, okay, well, seeing as you can't work on the Sabbath, if you're a tailor, you make clothes, you're not even allowed to have a needle in your pocket. It doesn't matter if you didn't touch it, just the fact it's in your pocket is a symbol of work, and so you've sinned against God if you had a needle in your pocket on the Sabbath day. Mad. Or if on the Sabbath day you're thinking, you know, I might go visit my nan. Well, you better hope she lives nearby. Because they said that it was a sin to walk for more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day. It's a sin. I mean, for some people, trying to walk two-thirds of a mile is hard work. If you've ever seen Tony trying to walk up and down Station Station Road, it's, it's painful to watch. So I could understand in certain circumstances. But they applied these rules to everyone. Sorry, Tony, you knew it was coming. You knew something was coming. It's not the end either. I've got more for you. <laughs> These guys just love to make more and more rules. And we might look at them and say, they were crazy. How on earth could things get so warped? But it's not actually that far from our times or our shores. I have a friend who grew up in a very strictly religious part of Belfast. And when she was a kid... People would go to the parks on Sundays and chain up the swings so that no kids could play in them on a Sunday. Because Sunday wasn't for fun, it was for rest and staying at home quietly. And so they would chain up the swings in the park on a Sunday. And that's within our lifetimes. See, what happens is people can start with good intentions and yet go horribly off the rails. So how can we avoid falling into the same trap? Well, let's look at the three reasons why relying on religion will always fail you. Number one, we're weak. We're weak. We find it difficult, I would say probably impossible, to continually and consistently obey the rules. If you know yourself well enough, I'm sure you agree. Our willpower and trying really hard only lasts for so long. Have you ever tried to go on a diet? Ever tried to eat a bit healthier? Do you know statistically how many diets fail in the UK? What percentage of diets fail in the UK? 95% of diets in the UK fail. Because our strongest intentions never match up to our actual effort and strength. We're weak. Secondly, the reason why rules and religions will always fail is because we cheat. We cheat. I had a friend who uh, was trying to live a healthier lifestyle, great, and said, I'm going to give up chocolate. It is a a problem for me, chocolate. I'm going to give it up. So she said, I'm not going to eat chocolate anymore. So I was like, great, really proud of you. Go for it. A couple days later, we were at our house. A few went around for dinner. And she was there sipping on a hot chocolate. 
We're like, what are you doing? You're two days into the chocolate thing and you're drinking hot chocolate. She's like, no, 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 no. I said I wasn't going to eat chocolate. Hot chocolate is drinking. It's different. You're like, okay, whatever. Fair enough, fair enough. So a few days passed. We're back at house, hanging out, and she pulls out a bar of white chocolate. I'm like, you cannot eat this. You're giving up chocolate. What are you doing? She's like, no, 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 no. I don't know if you realize, but white chocolate isn't technically chocolate. I didn't know this. I had to Wikipedia it. Uh, As she told me, apparently white chocolate is made up with cocoa butter and not cocoa beans. And so technically it doesn't count as a chocolate. So she could eat white chocolate. I said, if you're having to pull out scientific equations to prove that you're not eating chocolate, we probably have a bigger issue. And then the next time, I'm not making any of this stuff. The next time we went to her house, she was eating a Mars bar. And this is her exact phrase because we've requoted it to her multiple times. This is what she said. She said, it's not technically chocolate in its purest form. No joke, purest form. We're like, what, what are you going to suck on a cocoa plant or something like that? Like, what is chocolate in its purest form? See, now obviously we can laugh about that and it's a bit of a joke. But it points to something a bit more serious. See, the Pharisees did the very same thing with something called Corban. So how it works is this. The Pharisees decided to invent a bit of a, a way around a, quite an unpopular law. So what happened was this. In the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments is honour your father and mother. And in our culture, like, ah, what does that really look like? Well, back then, there was no pension. It wasn't like you turn 65 and then a little check comes from the government. No, if you didn't have any financial support, you were screwed. That's how it worked. So the way you survived in your old age was your children would give you money. They would support you. So if you didn't care about your parents, you'd still have to give them money. But people wanted to come up with a little kind of backdoor to avoid it. So what the Pharisees did was they invented this thing called Corbin, which said, if you give the money you wanted to give or were supposed to give to your parents to the temple, to us, the Pharisees, then what we'll say is that money has been dedicated to God and now, hmm, well, you're kind of relieved of your obligation to support your parents. Completely twisted. Something that God said, honour your parents, is now being twisted. Oh, sorry, I can't honour you, mum and dad, because I'm worshipping God with my money instead. Completely twisted. And again, we can look at them and say, what idiots. But do we do the same? I think we do. I think we can have a tendency to try and find rules that we can kind of bypass and play the system so we feel like we're doing good, but really our heart isn't in the right place. Have you ever found yourself saying things like, well, technically I wasn't lying. You ever use that one? I didn't, I didn't tell the, the full truth, but technically I wasn't lying. I've used that one. Or maybe you say, well, I, 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 I know I probably shouldn't have taken that, but technically it's not cheating, uh, stealing because that would have been taken anyway. And, and, or technically it's not cheating because, you know, our policy is look but don't touch. It's not technically cheating. And we come up with all these technicalities to make ourselves feel better Like, for example, going a bit maybe closer to home here in church, we say things like, 
well, technically I'm giving to church. I'm giving 10% of everything I have. And yes, I wait till after my tax has been paid and then I've paid off all the bills and then I put in money into my, my savings. And yeah, I'm technically giving 10% of my current account and that's all that I really see. So technically, yeah, I'm, I'm giving 10% of all I have to you, God. We play these little games and we make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And rules don't work because we're weak and we cheat. And thirdly, and the most kind of primary reason why rules don't work, is that rules don't transform your heart. Rules don't transform your heart. The problem with with rules is that if you become so focused on the, the doing and the sort of end product, you completely lose sight of why a rule has been put into place. You get so focused on the, the letter of the law that you miss the spirit of the law. Like how on earth can it get to the state where swings are being chained up on a Sunday in the name of Jesus? Jesus, the one who would take bolt cutters to those chains. They come on, enjoy it. I'm the one who made joy. I'm the one who, who says, let the little children come to me. You imagine Jesus chaining up some swings? No, madness. Yet it's done in his name. How does that happen? But when you get so focused on rules, God becomes almost like a driving instructor that's looking for faults in your life. Oh, as a little minor. Oh, that was a major you failed. Instead of seeing him as a loving father who's giving guidelines for how to have a life of flourishing. Like, look at the whole Sabbath thing. Why did God talk about the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, have a day of rest? Is it because on one day a week he's like, you know what, this whole running the universe thing is hard work. And if you knew some of the prayers I have to like wrestle with and the issues I'm dealing with, I can't do it 24-7, guys. Like, just give me one day off. Like, don't go to the park, sit at home in quiet, and then we can all just chill out for a little bit. Of course not. The reason that he said about the Sabbath is because he knows how you work. And if you work 24-7, you'll get burnt out. You'll neglect yourself and you'll neglect the ones you love the most. You'll get ill. Look at our society. How radically different would London be if we observed the Sabbath? See, the problem when you focus on rules is that you can trick yourself into thinking that you're living a good life that honors God. I knew a church leader who used to openly speak about how he spent over an hour every day Praying and reading the Bible. I really like admired him. I was so jealous. I was like, oh, I'm so weak. I can't do that. He did it every day without fail. Year after year. Decade after decade. And yet he fell morally. He fell morally. Caused no end of problems. Massive collateral damage. Hurt so many people. And that messes with our heads a little bit. Because in contexts like ours, we rightly really value spending time reading the Bible and praying. And so we're like, wait, wait, how can a guy who for decades has done the the kind of rule that we say is supposed to help you, and yet it goes so badly wrong? And it's because we can mistake discipline for devotion. So you can be doing all the right things, like praying and reading the Bible for hours every day. Yet if your heart is never connected with God, then it's empty. And worse, it can trick yourself into thinking that you are drawing closer to God when actually your heart is hardening. The truth is, 
religious rules fall short. And this won't be news to many of us. Many of us will say, yeah, I knew that already. You're just preaching to the choir. And our society has gone through decades of rapidly rejecting rules and religion. Instead, we've turned to another savior. We turn to rebellion. Rebellion says that rules ruin. Rules ruin. And this has been the message in our nation since around the 60s. And it's definitely come into its stride in 2018. The message is this. Rules and restrictions will ruin you. Don't put anything in place that will, will hinder you expressing you. Find the truth from within yourself. Live your best life. If, if there's something that is telling you don't do it, then it's probably the right thing to do. Your parents are probably stuffy and old and trying to control you, so break free, live for you, define your own truth, and that's how you'll know freedom. I watched three or four movie trailers this week. I was so interested how literally every single one was about a kid who'd been told by his parents how to live and the whole film was about him coming free and discovering who he truly was inside. And how beautiful it was that he'd rejected his parents and found out his inner truth. It's a story our society is saying over and over and over again. The idea is if we reject rules, then we'll find freedom. That will know a sense of unity as we accept one another. That there'll be an incredible sense of community in our nation if we just reject rules and let people do what they want. So has that worked? Has it worked for us? We've been experimenting for a few decades now. Well, let's look at one of the clearest case studies. Hollywood. The message in Hollywood for year after year after year is that we need to reject traditional views about sex and relationships. We've been hindered. We've been held back. We've been told how to live. And if you want to know freedom, if you want to know fun, then just reject any traditional views of marriage and relationships and sex, and you'd be free to express yourself how you want. And if you do that, then you'll truly find freedom and peace. And women will be treated with respect. There'll be equality. There'll be joy, there'll be love. Just live as free as you can. So how's that working so far? Has it worked? Well, partly yes. I'd say to a degree, some of the things of the religious past were unhelpful and we've rejected some of the unhelpful things. But we're also seeing how deeply flawed that worldview is. That rebellion has fallen just as far short as religion. We're seeing this whole worldview capitulate before our very eyes, even right now, every month in the news. The biggest preachers of that message are being found out. Producer after actor after director, having spent years saying, if you just do this, all these good things will happen, now being found out to be a sham. And the rebellion that was meant to bring us freedom has done the opposite. We're seeing huge levels of loneliness, huge levels of depression and dissatisfaction. So many of us are now addicted to porn and it's having a huge impact on sex and relationships. And let's not just put this on the, the world outside us. 
Let's look to us here in church. See, we can live in rebellion too, but we've got good at kind of putting a little spiritual mask on it so that we can justify it. We say things like, I don't have to serve or give or come to church or rest or do anything. I don't have to do anything because there's grace. God knows my heart. Yeah, I might not do it, but he knows my heart. I don't have to live as the Bible says because God loves me just as I am. And anyway, rules are bad for you. And in saying that, we become just like those religious Pharisees who rewrite scripture to suit their own benefit. Rebellion fails. Following your heart and doing whatever you feel doesn't work. Because your heart is unstable and unreliable and doesn't know what it feels from day to day. And Jeremiah describes it like this. It goes pretty hard. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. See, left to our own whims and wishes, it doesn't just happen that we become these really selfless and giving and kind people. No, no, it often has the opposite effect. Because rebellion doesn't work. And religion doesn't work. So what does work? Relationship. Relationship. Relationship says that a changed heart changes behavior. And this is the crux of what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying that religious people are so obsessed with what you have to do and rebellious people are so obsessed with what you don't have to do that both have missed the point. Both have missed the crux of the issue, which is it's all about your heart being changed, which happens by knowing God's heart, inviting him in to change you from the inside out. To religious people, Jesus says in verse 6, when he quotes Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're saying the right things, but the heart is in the wrong place. He's saying, your religious actions and words, and you're coming to church on Sundays and doing this and that, if your heart is in the wrong place, you completely miss the point. To rebellious people, he's saying, in verses 20 to 23, he's saying, if you're following your own emotions and saying, just follow your heart, then you are going to go down a wrong path because your heart is contaminated. He says this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes, here we go, it's a good list, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What he's saying is if you think that just living how you feel following your emotions is going to give you joy then you are destined for a lot of disappointment because our hearts are warped and twisted and capable of all kinds of evil and I think we've become so good at we're good actors we're good at hiding things of suppressing things that we can trick ourselves into thinking I don't think I'm a particularly you know bad person that list doesn't really apply to me at all well I think we've just got pretty good at, at hiding the truth of who we are And then when certain things happen, we say phrases like, I don't know how, I mean, that's not me. I don't know how that happened. I think I must have just been hungry. I was hungry. I mean, that's not who I am. 
No, no, no. The hunger just revealed who you actually are. Or, for example, we say things like, oh, I, I don't know, I can't believe I acted that way. I must have been, you know, so tired. No, the tiredness just took your filter down. And now you see who you really are. Why do you think it is that when we're in our cars and we just have a nice bit of glass between us and the driver who's just annoyed us, that we're capable of saying so many things that we'd never say if we were stood face to face. The driving doesn't make us a bad person. It reveals our hearts. Or we look at the internet and you hear people say stuff like, wow, the internet has made us so terrible. Look at all these trolls. Have you read the comments on YouTube and Twitter? No, the internet hasn't made us evil people. The internet has just given us a, a forum to express who we really are. You can do it from the anonymity of your own home and get away with whatever you want. So now your heart comes out. The truth is our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And many of us have just got good at hiding it. In Proverbs 4.33 it says, 4.23 it says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. What it's saying is you need to fight for your heart to be healthy because all of your actions, all of your words will flow out of it. So how do we do that? Well, let's get really practical. What are some ways that you can have a healthy heart? First of all, the first step to getting a healthy heart is getting help. Getting help. Pretty simple, but really important. All of us have baggage from our past. All of us have done things and had things done to us that will affect how we feel about ourselves and others. Now there's this myth, there's this lie, there's this mantra that time heals all wounds. Let me tell you for 100% tonight, that is utter nonsense. You're not just going to magically drift into healing. You need to fight to deal with the insecurities and lies that you're believing. So get yourself into places and get yourself around people who can help you find it. There's various ways that you can do that. You can read excellent books on this. I'm currently reading one myself at the moment. You can join our Freed for Purpose course. Tons of people in this room have done it. A course that runs a couple times a year where we just go deeper into looking at who you are, what are some of the, the lies we believe. We look at things like forgiveness and dealing with bitterness and how you can know freedom from stuff in your past. Get on a Freed for Purpose course. Another way is get on a good Christian counsellor. I've done counselling several times myself. Found it so, so helpful. I'm so pleased I did it. Worth all, worth all the investment. I have multiple friends doing it right now. So good, so good. I had someone come to me this morning saying, ah, oh, I want to do it too. Tell me about someone you can recommend. I would happily recommend people to you. It's worth your time going deeper with someone whose full-time professional job is to help you find healing. Next up, boundaries. Boundaries. Put meaningful boundaries in place that will help you attack the issues head on. And you might say, wait, wait, wait. You seem to be talking a bit like a Pharisee here, John. Isn't this the whole thing that they got wrong? They just invented all these boundaries to stop themselves from messing up. Yeah, that's what happened. So you've got to be careful with boundaries. But done in the right way, so helpful. Having a boundary that you say, look, this is for me. I'm not going to say everyone else has to live by this. This is for me for a reason and for a season. I'm trying to attack this issue. And so I'm going to live in a certain way that helps me do it. So like with me. 
I, um, I recognize that I have an issue with my phone. I recognize that I use it too much um, to numb, um, to fill time, and yeah, it stops me from um, yeah, having to sit with things that I need to be thinking through. And so for me, what I've decided to do is to try and set boundaries in place with my phone. And so, for example, I've deleted social media apps off my phone. I've tried to, and it's mixed success, tried to keep it away from my bed at night. Because I recognize that I can't be saying, oh, I want to address all my issues with my phone. And then just think by my own willpower, it's going to magically happen. You need to put things in place that are going to help you to change. Jesus would say it a bit more uh, strongly than I would. He says it this way. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, you might have heard that verse before. And usually when people read it, they say, now, Jesus didn't literally mean cut it off, so don't freak out. No, he didn't. He's not literally saying chop your hand off. But what he is saying is, get extreme with sin. Get extreme with it. Take extreme measures. Remove things from your life. So if every time you drink, you get drunk, stop drinking. If every time you hang out with that particular group of friends, all you do is gossip about people, Stop hanging out with those people. If every time you go to work, you keep falling into that same sin over and over again, then change your job. If every time you're on social media, you just find yourself getting jealous of people and feeling worse about yourself after, delete your accounts. Cut off the hand. Now, boundaries, hear this, hear this straight. Boundaries won't transform you. Just doing those things won't change your heart. Heart work is hard work. But boundaries give you the breathing space to go into it. So when you're in that space of removing the temptation or the challenge, ask yourself the tough questions that you need to. Ask yourself, why am I wanting to do this? Why is it that I keep wanting to drink too much? Why is it that I can't stop myself from from wanting to see social media 24-7 during the day? So what I've done with my phone. So for me, um, as I've, I've stopped using my phone as much, been pretty rough because what I've noticed is that when I'm feeling lonely or uh, upset about something or feeling insecure, if I, if I go on my phone, whether it's BBC News or Instagram or whatever, it's just such a nice numbing thing. I can just escape to what I'm thinking, go onto my phone, I feel so much better. So now I've removed that, I've been forced to stare those feelings in the face. Why is it that when I'm lying in bed at night, I'm thinking this way? Why is it that while I'm I'm waiting for someone to come, I can't have two minutes with my own thoughts? What are the lies that I'm believing? And then saying, Jesus, what is the truth that you want to tell me? See, if I don't remove my phone, I don't have that encounter with Jesus. And so it would be far easier for me to numb. Trust me, I'd much prefer to numb in the moment than have to look at why do I feel insecure. But in the long term, it's going to be for my good. And so I want to ask you tonight, what are some boundaries you can put in place? It's probably the thing that you don't want to do. It's probably something that's so precious to you that like, nah. It's my question. Maybe a practical one. You could talk about your communities this week. Talk a bit about boundaries, where it goes wrong and where it's helpful. Get help. Put good boundaries in place. And then choose to do the right thing. Choose to do the right thing even when you don't feel it. Now, the primary thing you want to do if you're trying to get a healed heart is to start by looking at what is happening inside. 
But it's key that as you do that, you also start acting out in the ways in which you want to be living. So for example, if your son is like, I really don't enjoy coming to church. I really don't enjoy it. And I can relate to it. I had several years of my life where I hated coming to church. I just found it so boring, just so irrelevant. Just I hate it. I couldn't wait for it to end. So if you're in that position, the first step is to say, why am I feeling this way? What's going on? But the next thing to do as you're processing that is to come to church every week. You don't wait till you finally feel perfect and you've got it all sorted. No, you start living in the way you want to be living and then eventually your heart will start to follow suit. It's the same with giving. If you're the type of person who every time you think about giving or a preacher talks about money or, or whatever it is, you start flinching. It happens all the time. People start getting really tense, money, money, money. If that's you, then the first step to do is to look at why do I feel so uh, uncomfortable? Do I get annoyed when people talk about money? God, what is going on in my life? Is it something, because I don't trust that you'll provide? Is it something that happened when I was a kid or when my parents talked about money? What's going on here? Go to your heart. But then as you're doing that, start giving. Jesus says it this way. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So yeah, when you start caring about something, you'll start giving for it. But equally, when you start giving towards something, your heart will follow. Start living in the way in which you want to be living before you necessarily feel it and your heart will come into line. See, getting a healed heart is so important. So important. Even this morning, I was chatting to someone who was saying, oh, I'm really struggling with this. I'm like, cool. What? Like, why don't you see this person? Like, I'll read this book. It'll be so helpful. And it's like, ah, uh, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort. It is. But if you want to see healing, if you want to see breakthrough in your life, then it's so worth it. It's such a great investment. Jesus' heart is for your flourishing. He wants to see you living free. He doesn't want you to be living bound up and without purpose. He wants to give you a hope and a meaning. And the truth is, you can know freedom. You can know healing. It's possible. It's possible. And that gives us such hope in our broken and messed up world. There is hope. But what's even better than that is that there's a greater hope still. See, if our goal in life, if the, the kind of end point of it all was getting a perfect heart, then it's pretty depressing. Because the truth is, you are going to die still with issues and baggage. By God's grace, I pray, it's a lot less than we've got now. But you're going to die with issues. There's going to be stuff still going. You're, still, you're going to die still being hurt and hurting people. You're going to see successes and struggles. You're going to see breakthroughs and backsliding. It's still going to be there at the end of your life. And if our goal, if our kind of purpose is to get perfect, then we have got no hope. No hope. And if we're people who want to spend eternity with a perfect God, then we should also have a lot to be concerned about. See, God is perfect in his presence. There can be no sin. And so for us, with our imperfect hearts, to be with him would be impossible. And that should worry us. If it wasn't for one thing. That there has been a perfect one. Jesus, who did no wrong. Who never had a hangry moment and snapped at someone who never gossiped or cheated or lied or said, well, technically, no, he lived the perfect life. 
And then he went to the cross. Not because he'd messed up, but because we had. As he hung there on that cross, he took all of my filth and all of your filth, every sin, every thought, every action, every despicable thing that you and I have ever done or will ever do. And as he hung there on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. And as he said, it is finished, he gave a hope that says you don't have to worry about whether you're going to succeed in being good enough. You don't have to impress God anymore. You can know the freedom of grace that says every time you mess up, there's not a God with a wagging finger pointing down at you, but a Father in heaven who lifts you back up and says, let's go again. That's our hope. Not that our counsellor will be good enough that we'll never feel insecure. Not that we read enough books that we'll finally not ever cry once in a while when we're feeling sad about that thing. No, our hope is in the fact that one day when we die, we will see Jesus face to face. And every tear will be wiped away. Every disappointment will be gone. Every insecurity will be forgotten. And you'll know perfect peace and perfect joy forevermore. And that's Jesus' invitation to you tonight. He's saying, if you don't know me, if you don't know my life of healing and freedom, you don't have to wait to start tasting that in heaven. You can start to experience that today. His invitation is to us all. To the religious, he would say, stop striving and stressing and trying to impress me, impress people in church, impress people at work. Come to me and I want to give you rest and restoration for your soul. To the rebellious amongst us, he's saying, stop trying to run from the truth that you need me. That you can just invent your own rules and follow your own truth, whatever that means, and come to me and let me heal you and guide you. Whether you're religious or rebellious, Jesus is saying, I want a relationship with you. That's the invitation tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, as we, as we picture you on that cross, we're reminded of the scandal of grace. We're reminded that that should have been our punishment. It's not fair that you would have to take the place that we deserve, yet you chose to do it in love so that we could know freedom, that we could know life. God, I thank you that there's an invitation for each of us tonight to lay down our religion, to lay down our rebellion, and to know relationship with you. God, I just ask for a kind of a Holy Spirit self-awareness that for, where, for those of us who tonight are just like, you know, I'm all good. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. I'm living my own truth. God, I thank you that you're so kind that you broke into my own life. You broke into my own lives. I was a religious person thinking that I was better than everyone else. Thought I had no problems. What a dangerous place that was. And I thank you by your grace that you showed me just how much I needed you. And I ask that you would do the same thing for people here tonight. That you would see just how much they need you. And that you're waiting with open arms. Open arms, so excited to welcome in every son and daughter who would run to you tonight.
We thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your freedom. We thank you that one day we'll see you face to face. What a day that will be. Thank you, Lord. Amen.